Come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. This week we talk about the wondrous house of the Lord that Solomon built, the first temple. Welcome to the Shalom Y'all Ministries podcast. I'm your co-host, Adam Keim, along with my great friend, Dr. Daniel McCabe. Daniel, two grave occurrences have taken place in the world of sports in recent weeks. The Cowboys lost in the playoffs, and it was the Packers that beat them. How do either of us come back from this? Well, I've got one word answer for you. You ready? Uh, I, I hope I am. Baseball. Oh, yes. It is. Oh, pitchers and catchers report in a few weeks. Yeah. yeah 32, you're right. 32 days, Adam, before the Astros, oh. my Astros, your Rangers, I don't know about their schedule, but my Astros in 32 days take on a spring training game against the Washington Nationals. So that'll get me to August at least and uh, a renewed interest in the Cowboys. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think maybe the Rangers report a bit sooner. And as you know, being an Astros fan, you got to get a jump on things when you are defending the World Series title. I don't I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> well, we here at Shalom y'all believe that a walk through the land deepens your walk with the Lord. Our mission of course is to teach and encourage those who love the Bible, the land of the Bible and the people of the land. Do you have any interest in seeing the promised land someday? Well, you know what? You can. If you travel with Shalom y'all ministries to Israel. The opportunity is yours. Go ahead and reach out for more information on how you or your group could visit the land of the Bible with us when the time is right. As usual, we begin our episode with a couple of mini topics before getting to our main subject this week of the first temple. Daniel, what do you have for us today? Adam, I have Dead Sea news. Did you know that Israeli archaeologists accidentally stumbled upon another major find last year in a cave on the shore of the Dead Sea? Now, there's a couple of things that pop into mind that it could be. Yeah, well, it's it's not a biblical scroll as one might have hoped, but nevertheless, a fabulous, unprecedented find. I'll tell you about what were the things that popped into your head. Well, either scrolls, I know that I I spoke with an archaeologist a few years ago that there might be some Dead Sea scrolls from a new cave, Cave 12 they're talking about. I I haven't heard the latest on that, but I think I know what you're going to talk about is the other thing that came into mind. I remember reading about, I will let you reveal the surprise. Yes, four superbly preserved Roman swords. Mm. They probably date to the period of 132 to 135 AD, which is the time of the Bar Kokhva revolt. That's a, a fight between the Romans and Jewish rebels who hoped to end the Roman occupation of their land once and for all. So the archaeologists, they entered this cave with plans to take high-resolution pictures of a previously discovered stalactite known to bear a Hebrew inscription. But they were fortuitous and rather shocked to find inside the cave, there alongside the Dead Sea, they found the head of a Roman javelin and four steel-bladed swords still in their leather and wooden scabbards. 
The blades, they ranged in length from 24 to 26 inches and were likely either stolen or seized by rebels before being hidden away in a mini armory for later battles. One archaeologist gushed. He said, just look at the fine preservation of the blades. They just look as if they could be picked up and used right now, even 2,000 years after they were forged. It's absolutely an unbelievable find after all these years. And yet, as Christians, we've made an even greater discovery, a sword whose blade remains forever sharp. And that's the word of God, of course. So to play upon the analogy here of the swords they found, I would just say this, you know, if for some reason your sword is laying idle on a shelf or uh, the Bible's still sitting in a drawer somewhere at your house and hidden away from daily use, you just haven't picked it up in a while, then pull it out once again. There are battles ahead and you'll need it for those battles. Hmm. That's absolutely right. Well, Daniel, as the years pass by, uh, for my mini topic, I'm going to talk about something very special to me and I know to you and to many of our listeners. As the years pass by, I am one of those who have become more and more comforted and inspired by the Psalms. I am shamed to admit in my younger years when I would hear people talk about their favorite books of the Bible, somebody would say, oh, Psalms, I love the Psalms. I remember thinking, oh, come on, there are more interesting books. But now I I feel horrible for even thinking that because I've come to love the Psalms so much and now I get it. I don't know if it's as you live more life in a fallen world, you need to cling to them closer, but I just love the Psalms. I know you do too. Uh, do you have any favorites? Well, you know, I would just say that for me, it's been a lot like you, a later discovery. It's only been within the last, I don't know, five to 10 years I've been spending more mm. time in the Psalms. I, I think there was a part of me that kind of thought, ah, oh, the Psalms, it's just, it's just poetry, and then I want something like meaty. And then you start getting into the Psalms, and you realize there's a lot there. But oh, yes. yeah, I do have a favorite Psalm, and it, it happens to be, I think, one of your favorite Psalms. I, I love, and I, maybe it's just because it's, it's easy to like it, but I love Psalm 1. Mm, yes. I really do like that psalm a great deal. I have just found that to be uh, an easy-to-memorize psalm, and I have done that, uh, gone over it many, many times in my mind. It's just very, very encouraging and comforting to me. So Psalm 1 would definitely be at the top of my list. There's some other psalms I enjoy, but that's that's number one for sure. Awesome. Well, among my favorite are, like you said, Psalm 1. I also love Psalm 23, 51, 73. Those are some kind of more of the famous Psalms, but there's there's too many to mention. But since we're talking about the temple this week, I would like to mention the Psalms of Ascents. Now, there are a few different ideas of why Psalms 120 through 134, 15 of them, are called the Psalms of Ascents. Now, the prevailing notion is that they refer to when the Jewish pilgrims would go up or ascend to Jerusalem, namely to the temple, to observe the three required pilgrim festivals, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Pesach, which is Passover, the Feast of Weeks, Shavuot, which is Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths, Sukkot, which is Tabernacles. Now, there's more we could say about why they're called Psalms of Ascents, but for now, I'd like to simply just highlight some verses from the Psalms of Ascents that mention the house of the Lord, the temple, or going up to Jerusalem in general. What do you think about that? Let's do it. 
All right, I have selections from four of them. And you could pretty much pick any Psalms of Ascent, any part of them. and They're just stunning. They're beautiful. But Psalm 121, verses 1 through 2, I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. I think of a pilgrim going up to Jerusalem and seeing the hills of the city, probably most likely Zion Hill more than any of them. And, you know, he lifts his eyes up to the hills and he's 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 recalling where his help really comes from. Now, hills could could mean something imposing. And so he's thinking that he needs help and the Lord is his help or something worthy of rejoicing. I get to go up to the hills to worship. But he lifts his eyes up to the hills and he he thinks of the Lord. I just think that's really beautiful in its simplicity. Also, Psalm 122, verses 1 through 4, says this, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up. The tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. And here the psalmist is celebrating how all the tribes in Israel would, would go up to these three required pilgrim festivals to the temple. Now, Psalm 125, verses 1 through 2, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. That too was a psalm about taking comfort in how the Lord is our protector. Um, and just like Mount Zion, if we trust in the Lord, we cannot be moved. And finally, I'd like to share with you Psalm 134, verses 1 through 3. It's the entire psalm. It's short, but very sweet. It says this, Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. So, Daniel, those are just samplings from four Psalms of Ascents that were sung as the people of Israel went up to Jerusalem to worship the one true God. What do you have for this week's trivia question? Well, since we're talking about worship today, my trivia question is also going to be about worship. And my four multiple choice answers are all items used by the Jewish people in worship. So here's my question. Which one of the following, again, all used during worship by the Jews, which one of the following is not worn by the worshiper? Which one is not worn by the worshiper? And here are your choices. Is it? A, kippa, B, sidur, C, talit, or D, tefillin. Kippa, sidur, talit, or tefillin. Maybe a little hard for some of our listeners, but Adam, you may be able to work through that one if you don't know it for sure. But I'll give you extra credit and you may be able to pull this off. I'll give you extra credit if you can tell me uh, as many as you can, or all four in particular, how they're used in worship. So the kippa, sidur, talit, and tefillin, which one is not worn, and can you tell me how they're used in worship? Think that one over, and we'll have the answer for you later in the podcast. 
Well, Daniel, there was so much, of course, we could say about the first temple that Solomon built. And when we decided to talk about the temple in this podcast episode, I was wondering, what am I going to focus on? Because, of course, there's a lot to it. There's a lot of history, furnishings, and items of worship, and what you would do at the temple, the reason for it. Um, So what I'm going to do for my main topic here is just walk through a couple of passages that have to do about David's desire to build the temple in the first place, because there's kind of a lot that leads up to it and why the temple comes about. As you know, the people of Israel would, um, as during the wilderness wanderings and as they first come into the land, they have the tabernacle, which was prescribed by God, a tent where people would meet with the Lord. And we have an episode about the tabernacle that you can check out on the podcast. But there comes a time in David's reign where he realizes, oh, no, we don't. I got a house for myself and, you know, things are going well for the people. We don't even have a a permanent place for the Lord. This is not good. So turn in your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 7, if you would, if you want to follow along. I'm going to read the first 17 verses and just kind of see what we can see in David's desire to build a temple. So 2 Samuel chapter 7 says this, Now when the king lived in his house, And the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. And I'm reading in the ESV, just so you know, listener, if if yours reads a little different, I'm reading from the ESV. Now the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. And you know, I can't blame Nathan for saying this because that, that's really a good desire. Well, let's build something grand for the Lord. It's, it's not right that he doesn't have a permanent place. So, you know, maybe Nathan is speaking out of his presumption a little bit, but it's a good request and I don't blame him for responding the way he did. And the Lord certainly was with David. But in verse four, we see that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan and he told him, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Now, what he's about to tell Nathan to tell David is, I kind of take this to be like a thanks but no thanks type of thing. You know, I I appreciate the intent, but God doesn't need what David is is thinking that he should honor God with. Again, I I do think it's it's a good desire that David has. It's not a wrong thing, but this is God, I think, correcting David's mindset a little bit. And he tells him, "I, I haven't needed a house yet. I'm fine. I don't need that. However, This is what Nathan is supposed to reply to David. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. This is interesting. God is going to kind of turn it back on David and bless him in a special way. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. 
Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Daniel, I think that's really interesting because David has a good desire. God in some way is saying thanks, but no thanks. But he does kind of grant David's request, although we will see it's not David is going to be the one to build it. But God goes even further to guarantee David that he will make David a house, so to speak. He says in verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Now, God is talking about Solomon specifically here. He says, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, there may be a temptation to think about Jesus. Well, maybe God is thinking about Jesus here, David's ultimate kingly descendant. But he says in verse 14, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, and we know Jesus will never commit iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Daniel, what I think is really striking about this promise is, as we know from history, the first temple will not last forever, but God guarantees David that his house and his throne and his kingdom would last forever. Mm. Any thoughts on that that you have? Well, I'm going to go in a little bit of the history here in a little bit and show you that it wasn't very long that the Lord's presence dwelt with the people, but still a significant period of time in the history. But uh, you're absolutely right, and um, we'll look into that here shortly. Yeah. So I'll read just one more kind of short um, section of Scripture in 2 Samuel 24. And what leads up to this is late in David's reign, he uh, he decides to, to take a census of all the people. And this census must not have had a very good motive to it. He, he probably was trying to count his military might to maybe take comfort in that and the strength of his military might because he gets punished for doing so. And, and God very interestingly lets David choose his punishment. <laughs> he said, you know, three things I offer you, choose one of them that I may do it for you. And um, the things he offers him is, you know, should there be three years of famine in the land? Will you flee from for three months from your enemies while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? It's interesting that God offers David to choose his punishment. David's answer is interesting. He chooses the pestilence. And the reason why he does that is he says in verse 14 of 2 Samuel 24, he says, let us fall into the hand of the Lord. You know, kind of me and the people, let us fall at the mercy of the Lord because his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. David knows that he'd rather be at God's mercy than at the the mercy of man. But God does send a pestilence, and uh, there's an angel sent from God that kills a lot of people in in Israel, and and they're suffering collectively as a people a punishment for David's poor choice in leadership. But the angel of the Lord stops at a very interesting place from the slaughter the threshing floor of Araunah, the Jebusite. David called out to the Lord when he saw the angel there, and he repents. I've sinned. I've done wickedly. 
but what have these people done? These sheep, please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. So David realizes he sinned. He, he humbly repents of that. Um, so let's pick it up in verse 18 of second Samuel 24. So Gad, um, you know, we've, we've seen David interact with Nathan, the prophet. Now here comes Gad, the seer. He came that day to David and said to him, go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arauna, the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. When Arauna looked down, he, he saw the king and his servants coming toward him. And Arauna is a Jebusite, obviously a Canaanite left over from the conquest period. And he owns the land and he sees David and his servants coming up towards him. And Arauna, to his credit, went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And he said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arauna said to David, and this is, you know, a good desire that Arauna has, let my lord the king take up, take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arauna gives to the king. And Arauna said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. So Arauna is willing to just give it all away to David. But the king said to Arauna, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. And this, of course, is a classic verse that, you know, oftentimes is is cited when somebody wants to you know, be generous and it wants to give sacrificially. I don't want to you know, get something for free. I I want to be able to sacrifice. And that's what David is saying. I'm not going to accept it to you for free. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. Now, of course, on that spot, many more sacrifices than this one would be made because Daniel, of course, this is the place where David builds the altar that Solomon would build the temple as the people of Israel would come and sacrifice to the Lord. So that's what I have for you, summarizing, kind of giving an overview of David's desire for the temple to be built. You know, there's a lot of angles we could take. You said that earlier when it comes to the study of the temple. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the temple is just one specific topic within the whole uh, wealth of ideas we could talk about as part of our ministry here with Shalom Yom Ministries. But it happens to be one of my favorites. I, I, I love everything about it. I love the Temple Mount. And I've even thought it'd be wonderful one day if I could do some, if I had some time to do some more in-depth research and even write more about the temple or write a newsletter about the temple. But I'm afraid I'd have like three listeners, you know, three three people yeah. who'd read my <laughs> newsletter. But Because I just love the minutia. But there's just so much about this topic that I love. You know, I first can remember learning about Solomon's temple in children's church as a boy. Mrs. Thelma Lindahl told the story of how Solomon built the temple on the same site where Abraham once obediently, perhaps even trembling, lifted his knife to sacrifice his son Isaac. And I especially enjoyed the stories she told about the good kings who came along after David and Solomon, especially little Josiah. I can remember the the pictures of flannel graph priests, the outdoor altar where they sacrificed the lambs, and of course the Ark of the Covenant inside the Holy of Holies. That 
took root in my heart at a very young age, it would seem. And all these years later, I am simply amazed that as you were speaking about earlier, that God chose to live among his people. Yeah. You know, even if only for a short time. Hmm. Well, Solomon's temple stood atop Mount Moriah for by my calculations, 373 years from the day of its dedication by Solomon, which I would date into the autumn of 959 BC until shortly after the capture of Jerusalem by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon in July of 586 BC, following an 18 month siege of the city. The people of Jerusalem and Judea, They'd be marched off to Babylon as captives. And then one month after the fall of Jerusalem, Solomon's temple was set aflame and burned ash. It would be decades before a man from the royal line of Israel's kings named Zerubbabel would be permitted to return to Jerusalem from Babylon with a group of homesick Jews to rebuild their city and temple. However, Ezra 3.12 informs us sadly that, quote, many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this second temple was laid before their eyes, end quote. Ezra's description stuck, and so Bible teachers to this very day commonly refer to the temple built by Solomon as the first temple. Now the Lord had told Solomon in 1 Kings 6, 12, and 13, he said, concerning the temple which you're building, if you walk in my statutes, then I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. But we know that the people didn't stay faithful to the Lord for very long. And over time, they even brought idols of false gods into the temple. And it culminates in these sad words that we read from the prophet Ezekiel in his his work 10.18, Ezekiel 10.18. He writes, Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple. God was no longer with them in a visible way, And they would have to wait another 500 plus years before witnessing God's visible return to them. A virgin would give birth to a son named Emmanuel. And once again, they could rejoice that God is with us. It's a great story, probably known pretty well to our readers. But here are some fun facts that might be new that maybe not all of us knew. And I think even in my research, some of these things were like, oh, I didn't really realize that. But let me share six things with you. I think they're fun. Uh, First of all, some have estimated the cost of Solomon's temple, the construction of it. They've estimated the cost at $5 billion Hmm. in today's numbers. They used a lot (laughs) of gold and silver to get to that cost. And I looked up on the internet by comparison, Amazon's new headquarters in Alexandria, Virginia will cost the company about half that two and a half billion. Hmm. So it was a very beautiful and ornate building. Second, 
the temple took seven years to build. And by comparison, it took only one year and 45 days to build the Empire State Building and a Globe Life Field, the mm. new home stadium of uh, your world champion, Texas Rangers, Adam. It, you don't say that? What? I, yeah, I just. Uh, sorry, I drifted out there. Yeah, I'm sorry. It was hard for me <laughs> to even say it. But uh, <laughs> the construction of the Globe Life Field took 31 months. Um, but. Uh, seven years, seven wow. long years to build the temple. Uh, thirdly, the inside ceiling of the temple, which of course the inside uh, building, which housed the menorah, the altar of incense, the table of showbread, the Ark of the Covenant, um, even behind the veil, the Holy of Holies, the inside measurement of the ceiling of the temple measured 180 feet long or 60 yards so wanted to kind of give you a picture of that. So in a 60 Minutes interview I ran across in 2005, Tom Brady said that in game conditions, his longest passes only traveled 50 to 50 yard, 50, excuse me, 50 to 55 yards downfield. So 60 yards is a, a pretty long distance. Yeah. Now also the temple was 90 feet wide, which... By comparison, the length of a basketball court is 94 feet wide or long. And then the temple was at least the, the building itself, housing the menorah and the altar of incense and the temple showbread. That building was 50 feet high, and that's exactly the width of a basketball court. So it was a pretty big place. Mm -hmm. uh, fourthly, uh, the highest point of Solomon's temple measures actually 20 stories tall. So again, a very massive building. And two more fun facts before I'll get to our trivia here. The fifth one is that the altar in the courtyard, which we, we know this altar pretty well. This is the altar where the sacrifices were offered. And we sometimes call it the altar of, of uh, bronze or uh, the altar of sacrifice. The altar in the courtyard stood about 15 feet high or <laughs> roughly the height of an adult giraffe, if that helps. <laughs> uh, and no, just in case you're wondering, giraffes didn't live in ancient Israel as far as I can tell. It kind of just works for my illustration, but 15 feet tall, pretty, pretty good sized hmm. altar there in the courtyard. And then finally, number six, there was no noise, no construction noise when building the temple atop Mount Moriah, because according to 1 Kings 6, 7, the stones were quarried at a separate location and transported to the temple site. Now, that's a study in and of itself, how they were able to move these massive stones from Solomon's yeah. quarry uh, to the Temple Mount. But today you can actually visit one of those ancient quarries on the north side of the old city of Jerusalem. I've been there two or three times. Admission to the quarry will set you back about 15 shekels or roughly $4, but maybe it's the engineering background that I have, but I find it to be a fascinating place. And on summer days, it's a, a nice respite from the heat. So six fun facts. I hope you enjoy those. Let's return now to our trivia question from earlier, and uh, you'll remember that I asked, which of the following four things, again, all used during 
uh, Jewish worship, which of these four things is not worn by the worshiper? Is it the kippah, siddur, talit, or tefillin? And, And before you attempt an answer there, Adam, I promised extra credit if you could tell me how all four items are used in the worship. So what do you think? I will have to admit that I'm thoroughly stumped on this one. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think about the things, you know, like that the priest wore yeah, in Old Testament times, or and I'm trying to recall some of the Hebrew words for them, and none of them that you mentioned kind of strike a chord with me. Um, are you thinking modern worshipers that go to... Yes, even today, okay. yes, they would use yeah. this today. Okay, my uh, my knowledge of of modern Judaism and what they do is not nearly as <laughs> okay. As I robust, thought it might be kind so. of hard. I thought maybe you might be able to pull some of these together, but the the very first choice, a kippa, um, that is a term that we typically don't use today. We tend to use the word yamaka, which is more of a Yiddish word. But what's right. a kippa then? What would a kippa be? That'd be what they wear over their heads when they worship. Yes. So that's not it. Uh, Siddur, there's the answer. Siddur is a prayer book that they use in worship. Um, see the talit, that's a prayer shawl that they will sometimes wrap around their shoulders and even over their head when they're when they're praying or uh, even reading scripture. And then the tefillin. Uh, th- these are like scripture boxes that they wear on their arms or their forehead. Inside these boxes, uh, they're trying to fulfill the the instructions of Deuteronomy to keep the words of God, the word of the law, close uh, to their heart, to their head, um, active upon their hands, shall we say? And they so they literally tie these boxes uh, to their bodies. But that's tefillin uh, that they wear oftentimes when they're they're worshiping as well. So that was harder than I thought. I knew it would probably be hard. So the keeper, the Siddur, the Talit, and the Tefillin. Maybe I should uh, write some posts on that. Maybe people would find that interesting. I don't know, but uh, thanks for giving it the old college try there, Adam. You got it. And I want to remind everyone that we have roughly 500 archived articles on our website on just about every topic imaginable. Now, it's hard to stump Adam, but I finally did it. Um, You did. But there's a lot of things on our website that when I researched them, I didn't know much about them myself, but I have found some fascinating topics. And Adam's articles are on there. We're all on there. Uh, You can find us at Shalom Y'all Ministries. No apostrophes, no spaces, shalomyallministries.org, and just look for the archives tab at the top of the page. Also, let us know, too, if there are any topics you'd like us to address, and we can always do that. Just send us an email at shalomyallministries at gmail.com, or there's a box there on our website that you can just fill out, and we'll get that to our email. But uh, let us know if we can help with that. We'd love to help, and that's part of why we do this ministry, to be an encouraging encouragement to you and and uh, to teach you whatever we can. So, Adam, what you got to close this out? Well, we do hope that you have enjoyed this discussion about the first temple in Jerusalem. And I will say and speak for Daniel, there's so much more that we would have loved to cover. It would take hours and hours. We could have talked about 
Abraham's, you know, intent to sacrifice Isaac at Mount Moriah, the future location of the temple. We could have talked more about the history of the temple after David and Solomon's day through the Kings and Chronicles period. Oh, there's so much more. Well, maybe yeah, we'll stay, have to do more in future episodes. But, stay tuned for our sister podcast. Right? Yes, exactly. But we we hope you enjoyed it. A little, a little, a couple little slices about the temple history. Now, the Lord was gracious to dwell with his people in person, and how amazing that would have been to experience. But we can also rejoice that we can worship God wherever we are, and that the Father seeks those who worship him in spirit and in truth. Shalom, y'all. Shalom, y'all.